One of the things that I really enjoy about Odense is the possibility to find quiet spots around in the city. For instance, um, the sound that you can hear in the background, it's from a place called the washing site at Odense River. Welcome to this first episode of the series Expat Life in Odense, Denmark. My name is Kjersti Øverland and I'm your host. Many people have dreams which which they they lose in everyday life and and to me there's something very empowering about reconnecting with these dreams. My guest today is Henriette Johnson. Henriette has moved back to Odense after many years in London as she has started up a clinic called The Good Expat Life. Henriette Johnson is a psychotherapist and she specializes in expat life issues. I meet with Henriette at her clinic in Odense. What inspired you to work with expats in your practice? Well, building my own experiences as an expat, um, I, I want to support the international community in Odense and surrounding areas. Um, because I, I realize that as an expat, you're quite often alone with your problems. Uh, and though you gradually build up a supportive network of people that you meet whilst you're abroad, it's not the same thing as having a space where you can consciously work on yourself and the consequences of expat life. So therefore, I decided to offer therapy in English for both individuals and couples. And I've also developed uh, groups for expat spouses, which I call personal empowerment groups, um, where I work with people who want to gain a greater sense of who they are and how expat life has affected their identity. Quite often when you are an expat spouse, you lose your sense of identity and you lose your sense of agenda because you are literally trailing your spouse around. And I want to help empower these people to be able to to make the most of their expat experience. Uh, many people have dreams which which they they lose in everyday life. and And to me, there's something very empowering about reconnecting with these dreams and to help people make them come true uh, so that's why i have been inspired to work with expats yeah. have you seen examples of people living out their dreams yes i have and and it can be little dreams like wanting to gain a new skill, learn a craft, or it can be bigger dreams of setting up a business or, you know, taking an education they've always dreamed up. It can be all sorts of things. And to me, it's not so much what the dream is about. It's more the process of actually trying to make that come true. And it's the personal fulfillment and excitement that people experience once their dreams have come true. It's a very rewarding process for me and my clients. Uh, and it's lovely to see people blossom and to really see them come into their true selves when they start to do something which they are, are passionate about. Um, so the, the whole idea behind this is to 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 take a difficult situation and turn it around and creating something positive 
from it. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit more about what happens to the identity when you are trailing your spouse? Well, in modern day life, many people build their identity around work and family. And if you are a trailing spouse, your work life quite often doesn't exist. Many people haven't got work permits or they can't find a job in Denmark due to lack of Danish skills or due to them not being able to have their qualifications validated. And it can touch on something very deep about not being good enough. And it sort of leaves people at sea, not knowing where the shore is, not having something to hold on to. And then people start to experience a lack of trust in themselves. Not only do they ask themselves whether they are good enough, they also experience that they lose trust in themselves being able to make things happen. They lose their creativity, their sense of initiative. So all sorts of agendas which we take for granted when we're back home are tested and that can be very difficult so having a support network not only me as the facilitator but also being in a group with people who experience something similar can be very powerful so people in the group start to feed off each other and that vibe that good energy if you can call it that people take that on board and it somehow grows in them uh, which can be an absolutely fantastic experience What kind of problem areas do you typically encounter in your practice? Well, expats are just normal, regular people like you and I. Uh, so I see people who suffer from anxiety. I see people who suffer from depression. Some experience stress. Some come with all traumas, um, low self-esteem, suicidal thoughts maybe they have had a death in the family back home it can be all sorts of things but I think what what adds an extra layer to it is that they are outside of their normal environment they are often far away from their support network they're far away from their family and many on top of of what they present with also experience isolation, loneliness, homesickness. So so um, it just adds another layer of complexity to the, their situation. I also see a lot of people who are struggling with settling down in Denmark and who really struggle with the Danish way of doing things. And... And... I see many people who, on top of, of, of feeling lonely and homesick, start to really question who they are as a person, you know. Uh, all of their coping strategies, which they have learned back home, may not work anymore because they're in a different cultural setting. Um I see people who've lost their drive, their just for life, um, due to to being an expat. I mean, people ha have this rosy view of expat life, you know, uh, quite often that entails sending your kids to a fantasy international school, 
your spouse going off to work, you going to, to lunches and meeting friends, doing charity work. And, and seemingly, it seems like a very convenient life, which it can be in some countries. But, but most expats in Denmark haven't got that life. They've got an, an ordinary everyday life with household chores, taking kids to school, you know, trying to set up life with friends and and hobbies and activities whilst having at least one of the the, the adults in the family having to earn money. Um, it's hard work. Being an expat is hard work. So all of those life challenges which can happen to any one of us often has an extra layer of difficulty to it simply because you're far away from home. Yeah, because I, I had the impression that a lot of people do get anxiety or do feel lonely when they are expats. I absolutely agree with that. Um, and I did myself, you know, immense anxiety and profound sense of being on my own. Uh, obviously, it's an existential thing to be on your own in life. I mean, you're born on your own, you're going to die on your own. But in my experience, both my own personal experience, but also in my clinical experience, being lonely in expat life is different in the sense that that you're far away from everything which is familiar and and safe to you. And when life then becomes difficult, you're sort of knocked sideways out of your comfort zone. Um, it's my experience that, I mean, people talk about honeymoon phase, about expat life, and, and there's definitely that honeymoon phase. And and there's also a phase following that where you're really questioning yourself, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Should I stay, etc., etc. But what, what, once you get over that, and you've done expat life for quite some time, expat life becomes your new comfort zone, and that can be exciting and exhilarating, and you gain lots of experiences which you would never have had had you stayed at home. But when life becomes challenging, and it will, because we're all going to experience illness in our family or our own illness, we're all going to experience grief we're all going to experience loss and death um being far away from home just makes you question your life choices in another way than it does had you stayed at home because there's a more natural progression to being at home than those to expat life expat life means fighting for things it means going out creating things claiming your place in the world in a different way than it does staying at home. There's something about staying at home. You look the part, you sound the part, you act the part. Being an expat, you're always the odd one out. And regardless of how well you you get to know a culture and how, regardless of how well you get to know a language, you're always a foreigner. And though people don't necessarily talk about their upbringing and which TV shows they watched, there's something comforting in knowing that you have a cultural... How do you say that? You've got some kind of common cultural ground to stand on. 
and you understand the other because you have watched the same TV shows as a child, because you have had more or less the same schooling, because you understand the country you're in. All of this you're never going to understand fully because you cannot go back in time to have these experiences. So in a sense, regardless of how well you think you have integrated, you are a foreigner. And when life throws its curveballs, as people say, it's just extra tough because you haven't got that something to fall back onto. Uh, it's almost like, like what you would like to fall back onto. It's just a void. There's a hole, that there's a gap because everything that you know is back home. And, and when you are struggling you are reliant of being able to fall back onto something, something solid which can hold you whilst you're going through that phase. And if you haven't got that, things become harder. What are the most important tools within psychotherapy? Um, the absolute most important tool, which we've just briefly touched on already, is the relationship between me and and my client. Um, which is also something I'm very aware of, especially in the initial phase, that, that it takes time to build trust. And though I may be trusting myself to be able to, to conduct therapy, a client may not be able to trust themselves or me to hold something which is particularly difficult for them. So for many clients, it takes time to warm up to talking about what do they really want to talk about. And that's absolutely okay. I very much trust that that what needs working on will unfold itself at some point during therapy. Um, I also believe it's important that as a therapist, I'm able to regulate myself emotionally when I'm, I'm with a client, because that way... I'm able to be the safe base and talking about expats it's really important that I am that safe base because not only am I their therapist but for some clients I am one of the only people they have to properly talk to in this country so it's important that I'm reliable and trustworthy and that's where me continuing to have clinical supervision but also to have my own personal therapy is vital. I think it's important, obviously, to know my theoretical background and it's important that I am, am able to make well-considered choices of the, the interventions that I do. Uh, and I always keep it at the forefront of my mind that this needs to be in the client's best interest. And I always work towards giving my clients a sense of autonomy I firmly believe that though I may be the expert on how to conduct therapy, my clients are the experts on how to conduct their lives. So I firmly believe that each client have the answers within them and it's my job to help them see the answers. It's not my job to impose anything on them. And lastly, this is turning into a very long-winded answer, Lastly, it's also important that I know my limitations and that I'm not afraid of saying this is outside of my remit, but I can refer you to someone who's better qualified for this than I am. 
You mentioned that you have been in therapy as well. Uh, is it important for a therapist to also be in therapy sometimes? Yes. I I always say that that part of being a good therapy is to be in therapy yourself. Um, first of all, I believe it, it's important that the therapist have had a thorough experience of what it means to be in therapy because it's a completely different experience to most other experiences in the sense that that you can actually experience falling apart and feeling very raw. And it's important to have a therapist who have been through their own psychological baggage to understand what, what it means to feel raw and what it means to fall apart, but also for the, the therapist to be able to hold the client and to show the client, I, I trust this process, I trust it's going to be okay, I know it's possible to survive feeling really bad about everything in life. Um, it's also important in the sense that that uh, the challenges a client experience in the outside world, I mean, in their marriage, in their relationship with their children or their friends or their parents or their work colleagues, etc., etc., will in some way manifest itself between in the working alliance between the client and their therapist. So it's very important for me that I'm able to recognize what the client potentially triggers in me, what belongs to me and my psychological background, and what belongs to the client. Because only then can I help them explore that and find other ways of dealing with it than the ways they've used so far. Um, as I, I said, there was extensive personal therapy on my course, but I actually believe it's important to to continue being in therapy, and I have a therapist in Denmark who I continue to see. I also quite like it. Um, not not very often do you have fifty or sixty minutes allocated to talking about yourself, to exploring yourself, to have someone truly paying attention to you and to have someone supporting you in, in what you find difficult about life. Some people some people believe that when you are a, a trained psychotherapist, you've got everything in check and you're fixed. I don't believe there's actually such thing. Um, I've built up a, I would like to think, a vast self-awareness but there are still elements in my personal life which I can find challenging. And I enjoy coming to my own therapy sessions, being able to explore that. Um, and it's definitely made me a, a better therapist. It's also made me a better therapist in the sense that you can only take a client as far as you've been yourself. So you don't necessarily have to have experienced the same challenges as your clients have but you, you your work gains a certain depth to it when you've been through the mill so to speak yourself I remember I mean after the hardship I experienced in England uh, I remember seeing a client who had, had tried to take her own life and there was a really strong and very dark very heavy sense of death in the room and I remember how 
she physically couldn't be in her own body. You know, she she sat trying to almost push herself out of her her body. That's how much pain she was. And then gradually we worked our way through. And I remember in our last session, she said to me that what had had kept her going was a very strong sense of me accepting that she didn't want to live. And and she said, for those 50 minutes a week, I felt okay. Um, and that really got me thinking, because if I hadn't had my own breakdown prior to that experience, I'm not sure I could have helped her as much as I did. So, so I believe being in therapy is vital to the work I do with my clients. That's powerful. I think. It's very powerful, yeah. very powerful, yeah. And it shouldn't be underestimated because therapy is not just a skill set. Um, research show, shows that it, it's first and foremost the relationship between a client and the therapist which helps them heal and move on. Uh, obviously, you have got to have really good psychological training you've got to be aware of what you're doing of how your therapeutic interventions help the client or don't help the client but first and foremost it's your ability to to truly relate to to feel empathy and show it and to just be there Uh, truly just being there for someone is really powerful What kind of therapist are you and where did you get your education? Um, I have a bachelor degree in integrative relational psychotherapeutic counselling, which is from Middlesex University in London. Is there a difference between education from England and Danish education in psychotherapy? Um, there's a difference in the sense that when you train to become a psychotherapist in Denmark, it's a four-year part-time course. Uh, whereas the bachelor degree I have was a three-year full-time course. And included in that was a big research program as well. Um, I know that that the the various courses you can take in Denmark varies a lot, uh, but some of them have been approved by Dansk Psychotherapeut Training, which validates the courses. My course was validated by the the BACP, which is the British Association of Counselors and Psychotherapists. Um, the the different courses are similar in the sense that they all require a certain hours of of um, teaching, you know, learning about the, the various schools of, of psychology. And on my course, there was a very strict requirement of having my own personal therapy along a lot of, of client hours, uh, as well as uh, clinical supervision, uh, which I, I also believe is the case for Danish courses. Mm. So though they vary, they're also quite similar. What do you enjoy the most, being a therapist? Lots of things. Um, First and foremost, I enjoy being with my clients. Um, There's a certain bond between a therapist and their client. And 
as much as this may sound as it's about me, there's something... It's a privilege being allowed to to really see people for who they are. It's a privilege to... um, to being let in on their their vulnerable side, on their old wounds, on their pain, on their traumas. It's a privilege to to be trusted, to be the one who can be empathic and who can hold and support them when they're going through difficult times. Um, It's also very life-affirmative in the sense that, that when you have worked with a client for a while and you have seen who they really are and you have understood their struggles and you've helped them work through them and they begin to to experience a greater sense of who they are and they start to, to put their old self-limiting beliefs behind them and they start to live according to their own values and their integrity and their they become more authentic in the world, which means that that they can slowly begin to fulfill their dreams and their goals. That's something quite special. Um, and, And I very much enjoy being part of that process. I enjoy being the facilitator of that. And I believe that every one of my clients have an innate ability to work through whatever obstacles they're they're faced with and to begin living more meaningful lives, uh, lives where they can trust themselves to be good enough. That's probably what I enjoy the most. If I would like to have therapy with you, how does it work in practice? Well... It works that way that people can find me either via my website or via my Facebook page. And then they can contact me via email or via a phone call. And I prefer to not do online bookings because I I like to have a quick chat with my clients before I book them in. Uh, Simply to, to see whether their problem is something I can help them with. Uh, So... In the first session, I talk a little bit about myself and I tell a little bit about how I work and I talk to my clients about confidentiality because obviously everything is said in confidence. And then I allow the client to speak and for them to tell me what they would like to work on or what seems to be their problem. And then we have a chat about whether I'm the right therapist for them and then we can then begin further sessions afterwards. I sometimes suggest that that we begin a series of six sessions, not that a client is then obliged to have the six sessions, but because many clients find it comforting knowing that they have got sessions at a regular interval. Therapy, in my experience, works best if if boundaries are respected. So, so we we talk about boundaries. So, for instance, cancellation protocol, contact me in between sessions, payment, etc. But also, what do we do if we bump into each other on the street? Some clients are happy to say hello. Some clients would rather not 
acknowledge me. So, so these things are important to have a chat about. And then obviously towards the end of therapy, we also have a chat about what has the client learned? What can they apply in their everyday life? Other aspects of therapy which have worked particularly well, something that hasn't worked at all, anything they would have liked to have have done differently, etc., etc. So, so though it sounds as if I have a protocol I would like to go through, it also varies a lot, you know, because different clients have different needs. Henriette, thank you so much for taking part in uh, this podcast. Uh, if people have listened to this and would like to get in touch with you, how can they uh, get in touch with you? Well, first and foremost, thank you for allowing me to take part. It's been a pleasure. Um, well, if people want to get in touch with me, uh, they can find me on my website, which is thegoodexpatlife.com. They can also find me on Facebook, which is also The Good Expat Life, where they, they can like or follow my page. But both on my Facebook side and my website, they will find information about how to contact me via email or via phone call. Yeah. You have listened to an interview with Henriette Johnson from the clinic The Good Expat Life here in Odense. After producing this episode... The corona crisis broke out and currently the whole world is isolating to beat the virus this new situation needs a comment Henriette and I decided to meet online and record an additional interview about the COVID-19 and how to cope with social isolation it's very normal to react with fear and anxiety given that it, it's, a, it's a very surreal situation for all of us Uh, we, we haven't tried a lockdown before and we don't know what the consequences will be. You can listen to this additional interview after this break. In your experience, how do people react to the pandemics? In my experience, people react with fear and anxiety uh, initially, and then later on, depending on how much isolation you're exposed to, uh, people can have other problems such as depression and insomnia. Some become very angry, uh, and some will probably experience um, post-traumatic stress syndrome, and some can even become suicidal from isolation over a prolonged period of time. Um, it's very normal to react with fear and anxiety given that it, it's, a, it's a very surreal situation for all of us. Uh, we, we haven't tried a lockdown before and we don't know what the consequences will be. People can fear for their health, they can fear for their jobs and their financial situation. They can also be afraid that that their family back home is not well and it can be difficult to support each other from a distance in, in times like this. Also, we don't know how long this lockdown will go on for and what will happen once society opens up again. Um, it could be that people are going to congregate to, 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 to have some social interaction. 
it can also be that people will continue to be scared of being in close proximity with others. And some people could continue to to have excessive personal hygiene. Um, so it's really difficult to say where this is going to lead longer term. I think what's most prominent for expats is the fact that they're far away from home. And, um, and though they were not able to have seen their friends and their family in person had they been at home, there's still something to be said for the actual physical distance. Um, and also, what are you supposed to do if a dear friend or family member dies back home? Um, if there's a funeral, in all likelihood, you're not going to be able to participate in it. Uh, it can also be difficult to grieve when you're far away from home and you're far away from your loved ones. And I also hear that um, some experts find it difficult to trust that they are being given the right information from our government and other authorities. They may come from a country where, where things are done differently. And depending on how long they've been in Denmark and depending on how well they know the Danish system, it can be difficult to trust the information. Um, and it can be difficult to trust that what's been put in place is enough to contain this virus and to keep us, us safe. So all in all, it, it's a cocktail perfect for fear and anxiety to spin out of control. And these are emotions which can be very difficult to deal with. How do uh, fear and anxiety show? Um, well, fear and anxiety are actually two different things. Um, fear is that the bodies respond to a, a threat or an impending danger, whereas anxiety is is our response to a perceived threat. But they actually show with same symptoms, such as a faster heartbeat, you can feel dizzy, you can start to shiver, you can have tense muscles, some will experience breathing difficulties, and some will start to sweat. Uh, it activates our fight and flight response system. And um, and for some, it can feel like a very heavy impending burden to carry. Um, I think everyone who's suffered from anxiety will know how uncomfortable and debilitating this experience can be. And given, given we, we haven't tried this before, and given, as I said before, we don't know how long this is going to go on for, it can be difficult for some people to soothe themselves and to keep calm um, in a situation where it's actually really important that we are able to keep calm. As, as a community, it's important that we, we keep calm and, and we try to contain the anxiety that we may feel. Some people who are more prone to anxiety um, may start to binge watch news and they may cling on to every single story of people infected and, and of people who have died from COVID-19. Um, and, and they will probably experience a higher state of alarm within themselves. And it can be really difficult to have an outlet for this. And then you've got others on the other end 
of of the spectrum who who have a defense system where they they try to keep a distance to the, the problem and they will react in a in a much less emotional way and they might even refrain from following uh, the, the news uh, trying to convince themselves that this is not happening this has got nothing to do with them so if you have a family or a couple it's very likely that people are going to have different reactions and it just makes it more difficult to be together if you're with someone who's reacting in an opposite way to yourself hence there being more pressure on couples and families over time um, so it's not just how, how we react outside of our homes it's also what we do within our closest relationships at home which can prove challenging but there's no doubt that that uh, it is a situation where where it's appropriate to feel fear and anxiety because ultimately this taps into our our biological survival system can you tell more about what happens when we feel fear and anxiety yes um ultimately when we feel fear and anxiety it's because biologically we're geared to be on the savanna uh, as hunters at and gathers um, for food. And though many moons ago, as a species, we haven't moved on or changed our survival strategies, namely our flight, fight and freeze response. And what happens is that we've got two little parts, two small parts in our brain called amygdala, which hijack us. And uh, they are part of what is called the limbic system, which essentially controls our emotions and our memories and our arousal. And you could say that the amygdala is part of the brain's emergency control room in the sense that it helps us respond appropriately to threats and dangers. Um, the amygdala reacts by affecting our breathing. It also sends a message to the adrenal glands to produce stress hormones such as adrenaline. And it ensures that blood is pumped to our muscles to allow us to be able to flight or fight. So ultimately, it gives us a huge amount of energy. And this response is appropriate if we had been on the savannah and being chased. But given that we're not on the savannah right now or any longer, um, the response doesn't help us in a situation like the current one because we cannot immediately go into fight or flight mode. So adding to the amygdala being our control room, so to speak, it's also where we store any previous experiences we may have had of danger and fearful events and traumas and that's why some people are more prone to have an overactive uh, amygdala and as such feel more anxious than others so given we haven't got an immediate outlet of this energy that we are generating we are left with feeling uneasy uh, we're left feeling quite tense and for some this can be a very embodied powerful emotion and there's just no release to be had. So for people who suffer from anxiety, this can be a very challenging time indeed. I think it's important to keep in mind that anxiety and fear in itself are not dangerous. 
but they can be very, very uncomfortable to sit with. And it can be difficult to, to soothe yourself and to keep calm. Uh, but they are not in themselves dangerous. So what should people do about their fear and anxiety? I think it, it's important to um, to try not to repress emotions of fear and anxiety, because if we try to repress them, they have a tendency to enhance themselves. Uh, in my experience, some people benefit from from almost talking to their feelings, saying, okay, I notice you're there right now, it's okay. Um, because if if we can accept how we feel, we're also able to deal with it. Uh, a way of dealing with our thoughts and emotions is to, to try to control our breathing. Uh, so what works quite well is to, to ground yourself, so really feel your feet solidly planted in the ground. Uh, you can support yourself by leaning against a wall. You can also feel how how your back is supported by a chair that you're sat in, or by a sofa that you're you're lying in. And then just breathe, you know, slowly and heavily. Uh, and then, as time goes by, you will feel that you're you're breathing more calmly. So there's a lot to be said for trying to ground yourself in the moment of fear and anxiety. And then I think it's also important to to remind ourselves that, as I said before, fear and anxiety in, in themselves are not dangerous. They're uncomfortable, but they're not dangerous. But also to remind ourselves, if we are not ill in this very moment, we are actually okay. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for practicing being in the here and now these days. So these would, would be my advice to people who who feel lots of fear and anxiety these days. How about couples and families who are not used to spending so much time together? Do you have <laughs> well, any advice to them? <laughs> that can be a challenge for all of us. Um, it's ironic that... Some people will experience social isolation. They'll be longing for their family and others will experience being cooped up together for too long. Um, obviously, the corona crisis in itself is not a crisis for a couple or a family, but whatever conflicts and struggles are there already uh, might be fueled further by the fact that, that we are together in a confined space over a prolonged period of time without opportunity to be around other people, without opportunity to go out and do things together. Um, so so I expect many couples and families will experience it being challenging, being around each other for such a long period of time. And any existing you know, worries or conflicts, you know, it could be over money or a job situation, it could be a failing relationship, uh, it could be another illness, um, can be intensified due to the uncertainty of the situation and due to people just being together all the time. So, um, so the key, I believe, is that we're open about how we feel and that we accept 
how we feel ourselves, but also that we accept that our partner might feel differently, our children might feel differently. And I think it's important that we try to align our expectations. Some people might see this as an opportunity to be together all the time, whereas others might want to tidy up their shed. You know, if we don't align our expectations, that can also be source for, for conflict between people. When we talk about aligning expectations, it's also important to have a chat about how much time each individual in a household needs on their own every day. You know, and obviously I'm not talking about I need one hour and 45 minutes per se. I'm talking about the fact that some people might want to spend a lot of time together, whereas others are happy on their own. Um, so talking about what goes on is not just a way of managing this. It's also an opportunity for people to get to know each other better and to bond. So uh, talking a bit together, a little bit meta-talking about how to be in the, yeah. in the yeah. crisis. Yeah, talking together, building awareness of what is going on with, within yourself, but also in the, the, the people who are close to you. Um, and, and really trying to be empathic um, to, to others' reaction to this, because we are not going to react the same way. No. And if you really want to be social and the other one doesn't want to, then you can have a conflict. Yeah, easily. Yeah. Easily. So it's really important to try to talk about things. It's always easier to talk about things in times of peace than in times of war, so to speak. So so try to, I mean, I'm not talking about people, people outlying all sorts of potential issues that could come from this, but I'm talking about being a little bit ahead of the game. Um, because obviously people who... who share the same household, know each other already, and and before this crisis set in, they will already know who's got a larger need for time on their own, own on their own than other people do. So it's not as as if these things are not known. They might just not have been spoken about. Yeah. Makes sense? That's great. Yeah it does, yes. Yeah. So hmm. um, you mentioned social Isolation. How about people who live on their own? Well, I mean, lots of people live on their own these days, and um, and social isolation can turn out to be a real big problem for people. Um, there's a medical journal called The Lancet, which has published a, a study where they have re reviewed three thousand studies on the possible psychological consequences of being quarantined and um, looking at these studies they have summed up some of those studies which suggest that social isolation can lead to uh, further symptoms of uh, infection fears it can lead to depression insomnia anger frustration um, it can also lead to fears of inadequate supplies and information Uh, some people might experience emotional burnout. Um, it could also lead to problems with alcohol and, and drug abuse. And again, it could lead to post-traumatic stress disorder and suicidal thoughts. So the consequences of social isolation are actually quite dark. Um, 
So if you are single, I think it's important to accept that you are extra vulnerable to this situation of social isolation. It's important to acknowledge that you have a need for social interaction. And it's important to reach out to your network. Um, And for people who are not single, who have the support of their family at home, I think it's really important that we, we have a think about who in our network of friends and family could be extra vulnerable and that we reach out. It's always much, much easier for people who are in couples or in families to reach out to single people and ask if we could have some of their time than it is for a single person to reach out to people who are with their partner or their family because single people can feel that they're stealing away their friend from their partner and family. So reach out to your friends and family members who are sat on your own. This is really important. In general, I think, and this goes for people who are on their own just as well as people who are with their partner or their family, I think it's important to keep a routine, have a schedule. Um, I think it's important for as long as, as you are healthy to find a project. You know, I mean, this time can be used for something positive Uh, so if there's something you've been longing to do but haven't had the time or the energy for this may be the the time to start that up i also believe it's key to be eating well and sleeping well it's key to exercise regularly it's key to get some fresh air and luckily we've been blessed with very very good weather so far um i think it's key to Try not to dwell too much on the news. Obviously, keep yourself informed, but um, it, it's important to spend your time doing something else than just being sat in front of the news. And then talk to each other. You know, uh, align your expectations and talk to each other. But also um, watch a film together. Play games. You know, have some fun. Uh, And some of this can actually be done online. You know, you can have dinner online with people you haven't seen for a while. You can be watching the news together, discussing them afterwards. You could watch the same same film, have a chat about it on the phone afterwards. So be creative. Um, This may very well turn out to, to be an instigator for new ways of being together. Yeah. That's great. These are really good advices. Good, I'm pleased to hear that. You have been listening to two interviews with psychotherapist Henriette Johnson from the clinic The Good Expat Life here in Odense, Denmark. If you are interested in more information about Henriette's practice or about coping strategies during the social isolation period of COVID-19, you can read more on Henriette's website, thegoodexpatlife.com. On her blog, Henriette shares practical strategies regarding how to cope with fear and how to cope with loneliness. And she also gives advice on how couples and families can deal with living together in isolation. My name is Jaste Øverland. This podcast belongs to the Expat Life in Odense podcast series. And this podcast is to be posted monthly. So hopefully in the beginning of May, the societies can open up again. Stay safe. Bye for now.